I believe that most of you know that I was born into a Roman Catholic home. And I assure you, I had nothing to do with that. Nothing whatsoever. But when I was only a few days, weeks old, whatever it may have been, I underwent what was called the Sacrament of Baptism. I remember it well. Yes, I remember that uh, my uncle and someone else held me over a bowl and some Romanist priest came along and he said some uh, holy words over me and then he took some holy water and he sprinkled it over my head and I cried. And according to the Roman Catholic Church, that day I became a member member of their church and a member of the kingdom of God, according to them, I was saved. I was born again because of that ritual. Now, you know that I don't believe that today. And when some come to me and speak to me about baptism, regarding baptism, who have been uh, recently saved, and I mentioned to them that they need to be baptized. Oftentimes, some who have undergone that same ritual when they were kids say, but I've already been baptized. And I say to them usually, no, you haven't. Because that is not baptism. But you say, it is baptism. They call it baptism. Okay, here's the deal. The question ought not to be, what is baptism? The question ought to be, what is biblical baptism? Because when you're talking about baptism, usually it's in the context of religion, the context of a church, and believe it or not, that ought to include what the Bible teaches. And so the question is not, what is baptism? The question is, what is biblical baptism? Now that's where we're going this morning in our continued study regarding the ongoing work of the resurrected Savior. That's where this brings us to this morning, today, as we continue to see the lessons that our Savior taught in his post-resurrection appearances to his apostles, as he taught them many wonderful things. And we saw from John's gospel how he restored Peter. We saw what the apostle Paul said about it. And if you'd please turn with me again to Matthew 28, we're continuing to see a lot of theology taught by our Lord in his appearance to the apostles here in the Gospel of Matthew, in what we have called his appearance on the Mount. We looked at this text and focused predominantly upon what he says to them in verse 18, as he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is, he's telling them that he is the sovereign Almighty God, with all authority, in heaven and on earth. Now, in light of the fact that you've known me, you've seen me, 
You see me resurrected before you today. You hear me teach you who I am. Go therefore and make disciples. We call this his instructions to an evangelizing church. Go make disciples. And as we saw last Lord's Day from the scriptures, they did. They went throughout the world and they were, as we saw from Acts chapter 1, his witnesses to the remotest parts of the earth. We even saw how many, if not, I should say, really most of the apostles gave their lives. As that word, be witnesses, martus, means to bear witness of what you have seen. Be a witness, uh, uh, give a testimony to what you know, but it also means to die, martyr, martus. And they did. Most of the apostles gave their lives in remote countries to bring the gospel. And these are what we have seen from the scriptures. There's so much in this text that as I have done some of the preliminary work, we might be here for a couple of more months. Because next week we're going to pick up with his instructions to a Trinitarian church. And I just don't want to rush that. One of our brothers even said Wednesday evening, that churches are just not teaching and their people and preaching about the Trinity. I have made the executive decision that we're going to. We're going to spend several weeks looking at the Trinity. But today... His instructions to a baptizing church. As he says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it's baptizing them. For centuries the church has seen a good deal of debate over baptism. There are different views, and in some cases, good men differ. In other cases, it's just downright heresy. But there's been debate over baptism for centuries. First of all, the question is asked, who is to be baptized? Some suggest as regarding my own experience that I just related to you from my memory, that I was baptized as an infant because that particular church teaches that you should baptize children, baptize babies, baptize infants, because that's how they're saved. We call it baptismal regeneration. That when you're baptized, you're regenerated. We, we talk about being regenerated in Christ. Well, the Roman Catholic Church teaches, if not officially, definitely they imply it, that when you are christened, when the priest pours that holy water on you, you're saved. You become a part of the church. You become a part of of the kingdom of God. That's what they teach. Baptize babies to save them. Now, other churches, 
believe that you should baptize children for different reasons. And I'll pick on the most predominant one. That is the Presbyterian Church. The Presbyterian Church teaches that you baptize babies, not teaching that that is what saves them. However, it's awful close. But they teach that children should be baptized to make them part of, as they would put it, the covenant family of God. That you baptize a child to make it part of the covenant family. And, and I, you know, again, they may not state this, and in fact they don't. But it is certainly implied it kind of gives them a better chance of being saved. You know, that, that gives them a chance, an edge, to help them to get saved. You make them part of the covenant family of God. And to them, baptism replaces circumcision in the Old Testament, which was the symbol of the Abrahamic covenant. You remember from your Old Testament reading that that was a symbol of the Abrahamic covenant that they would, bat, they would circumcise the adult males at a certain time, and that was what showed that they were part of the covenant family of Israel. So Presbyterians believe that that's what baptism is, to, is supposed to be today. You baptize, you sprinkle a baby, you baptize a baby, and that therefore means that it's part of the covenant promise of the Abrahamic covenant for today. But then, there are those who teach that you should only baptize believers. That when a person is genuinely saved and gives evidence of their salvation, that that is the person that should indeed be baptized. And that would mean usually adults or perhaps older children. But they are the ones that are to be baptized according to some. According to those who are right. (laughs) Now, that's the first question. Who should be baptized? The second question is and has been put forth throughout centuries in the church. How are you to baptize? Who should be baptized? How should they be baptized? Now, obviously, those who believe that you should baptize children, sprinkle them. They sprinkle a little water on their head. Like I said, I remember that water on my head when I was two weeks old, yeah. No, they they sprinkle water on the head. Logistically speaking, how else are you going to do it? They're not going to take a kid and put it down in a bathtub or something. So they sprinkle the baby with some water over the child's head. And they do that sometimes even to adults who get saved and join their church. But by and large, it's to children. On the other hand, there are those who believe in baptizing believers and they hold to the fact that they should be baptized by what is called immersion. 
That is, they go under the water and come up again. Not as one of my deacons used to call it, we baptize by submersion. That would mean you just put him down and leave him there. <laughs> but we baptize by immersion. Uh, I'm sorry, those who believe in believer's baptism baptize by immersion. They go down under the water and come up again. And there's a reason for that. And we're going to explore those reasons. Now, if only there was a passage, a verse in the Bible that definitively told us who should be baptized and by what method. If only there was a verse in the Bible that made it clear that we could go by, it would settle the controversy. Don't you wish there was such a verse? Here it is. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. It's pretty clear. In fact, I believe that this verse is clear, plainly stated, unambiguous, and tells us exactly what we're supposed to do. And it's from the Lord Himself. It's what Jesus said. Baptize them. So we're going to look at this whole controversy very clearly and plainly under two headings. The man and the method. Who should be baptized and how should he or she be baptized? The man and the method. And we'll take up predominantly the bulk of our time by looking at the first one, the man. Now, before we look at this, I want to remind you what we've already seen here. We looked at this text and we did some dissection and some exegetical studies under what Jesus meant when he said, Go therefore, disciple. Make disciples. And I want you to think back as to what we saw when we looked at that heading to make disciples. What was Jesus telling them? First of all, we said, certainly this meant that they would go and make converts that people would be saved. And Jesus taught us in John's Gospel and chapter 8 where we looked that he said it is truth that sets men free. So Jesus is telling them, look at me. I'm raised from the dead. You've been with me for over three years. You've heard me teach. You've seen the miracles that I've done. And now you see me resurrected from the dead. And I'm telling you, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples. Well, he didn't mean just teach people. Obviously, people would be saved. People would be converted they would teach people to repent and turn from their sins and the power of the Holy Spirit would save them. We saw that in Peter's first sermon from Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit taking the word of God and converting thousands. So obviously part of make disciples meant there would be people saved. 
And then along with that, you would teach them as again in the Gospel of John and chapter 8, our Lord said to them, here's how you know you are truly my disciple if you continue in my word. So you put all of that together, make disciples, there will be genuine converts, Make disciples, you will be teaching them the things of my truth, the things of my word. And what do you get? Look again. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Now, if only we can figure out who the them is, we can answer the question, who is to be baptized? Who's the them? Because Jesus instructs his apostles, baptize them. Who's the them? Now there are some people that are so foolish as to take this verse and say that you're to baptize all nations. Because it says in the text, make disciples of all nations baptizing them. And what they say is, well, he's talking about baptizing all nations. No, that is not who the them connects to. It does not connect to the all nations. In fact, that's absurd. The language in the text is clear and unambiguous. Without question, the them refers to disciples. Make disciples baptize them as we saw in the last two weeks it's make disciples in all nations they were to go all over the world and they did even without even leaving the block remember in acts chapter 2 they spoke to many who were from around the world and heard the gospel in their own language in their own tongue that's making disciples of all nations. But it's not baptizing all nations. It's making disciples of all nations. And so the language is clear. The them is the disciples. Those who are converted by the truth of God. Jesus said truth will set men free. Those become disciples. If you're my disciples, you keep my word. Those are disciples. Those are the ones Jesus teaches are to be baptized. Now, if it were all nations, go baptize everyone in every nation, what would that mean? That would mean that everybody everywhere ought to be baptized. We ought to just load up a big water tank on the back of Doug's truck and go down the street and spray everyone. Aha! You're baptized. You're baptized. We could use your truck too, and you've got a truck now. We just use everybody's truck. You got a couple of trucks. We'll just load up a bunch of tanks of water and go around baptizing everybody. That is absurd. I ask you to turn in this same gospel back to chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This is part of 
what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I just want to focus on two verses here, very familiar. Look at verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. We sometimes call that the broad road. It leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. There are many on the wide road, the broad road. You get the picture in your mind. It's like a huge, wide, big old highway with multitudes on it, following along, going in that same direction. And then the contrast is, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. That's a narrow road. And there are only a handful on that. The remnant. And this is a picture of the saved and the lost. The wide road is a picture of humanity that is lost on its way to destruction. Multitudes going along. Oblivious to God. Oblivious to His Word. They don't care. They don't want to care. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to know about it. And they're on their way to destruction. But then there are a few by His grace, who are saved, who are drawn, and they enter on that narrow road. And they're on their way to glory. So here's my question. If Jesus expected His apostles to baptize all nations, why would he say that most everybody in all the nations is lost? Jesus knew that the multitude of people will be lost. The most, most of the people to whom you speak and talk and witness don't want to hear about your Jesus. They don't want to hear about your God. They don't want to hear about your church. They don't want to hear about your faith, and they certainly don't want anything to do with your baptism. So when you go back to chapter 28 here in the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus says to them, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. He's not talking about baptizing the nations. He's talking about baptizing disciples out of all nations. Wherever you go, some will be on that narrow road. Those are the ones you baptize. Those who are disciples. Disciples of our Lord Jesus. Now we know this also as he goes on to say, if you look at verse 20. Baptize them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Are you going to teach all nations and everybody in the nation, even though they're lost, all that Jesus commanded them? What are they going to tell you? I don't want your Jesus. You see, this too connects back to the them 
in verse 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And that is exactly what we saw that it means to disciple. Teach them. Instruct them. Show them the truth of God. Show them the truth of God's word. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. What does the rest of the world care about what Jesus commands us? Not much. But you do. If you're saved, you do. If you're saved, you care about what Jesus taught. You care about what Jesus said. You care about how Jesus instructed you to live. If you're saved, you want to learn. You're hungry to learn. You want to be instructed. You want to obey. You want to follow. This is what he's talking about in verse 20, connecting back to verse 19, and the, those who would be disciples. Make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. This is the teaching of our Lord in this passage. Those who are disciples out of all nations will be baptized and will be taught. That is the instruction of our Lord. Now Jesus is here giving the apostles what we call the second ordinance in the Christian church. The first ordinance that he gave is the Lord's Supper. And he did that several chapters earlier, prior to his death on the cross. As you know, as we, in what we call the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper, he taught them to take the bread and the cup and do this in remembrance of me. That's the first ordinance that Jesus gave to the church. This is the second ordinance that Jesus gave to the church, that we are to baptize those who are saved. Baptize disciples. Baptize believers. The one who repents, the one who turns from his sins, they are the ones to be baptized. Let's look at an illustration of this. Again, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Here in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter is preaching to the church using the Word of God in Acts chapter 2. And he preaches to them and he points out their sin, that they killed Jesus. And they say to him, verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, What shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. Now, some people would say, you see, it's talking about baptizing children. Except for the fact that he adds, and everyone who is called to himself. Guess what? I have three children. 
all were called to Jesus and they were baptized. In that order, I add. They were called to Jesus and then baptized. So he says, as many as, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, they solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, look, those who had received his word were baptized. We have this huge group of people. It is suggested that at the time of the Passover, there were as many as a million people in Jerusalem. Because remember, that was a pilgrim feast, and people came from all over to Jerusalem. So there were so many people. I'm not suggesting that Peter was preaching to a million people, but he was preaching to a lot of people. And which of those, how many of those were baptized? The text clearly says, those who had received his word. Not everyone. It doesn't say that everyone that was there was baptized. It says that those who received his word. That is a synonym for saying those who were saved. Those who received the word of God are those who are saved. Remember, what is it that sets men free? Truth. What is truth? Romans 10. The word of God, the word of Christ. And as many as received his word were baptized. And notice, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. Added to the church. Baptism is in conjunction with the church. It is an ordinance of the church. I don't like to hear when people just go around baptizing people. Maybe even someone that they led to the Lord or something like that. Baptism is not a you ordinance. You save somebody and you baptize them. Baptism is a church ordinance. Churches baptize people, not individuals. Baptism is the second ordinance of the church. And according to Jesus... And according to this experience in the New Testament church, it is those who receive his word. It is disciples who are baptized. Not everybody. Disciples. Those who received the word were baptized and then added to the church. Let's go back to Matthew 28. Apply that to what we see here again. And we'll see what Jesus says. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them. If you understand that you are to baptize believers, baptize disciples, understanding the clear teaching of what Jesus says in this text Baptize believers, it eliminates completely the uh, misinterpretation of the Roman Catholic Church that says you baptize to make believers. That is completely backwards 
and completely opposite. You've heard that term. That's putting the cart before the horse. They baptize to make disciples. That's not what Jesus says. He says, make disciples, baptize them. The Roman Catholic Church is in heresy with their sacrament of baptism. It is not biblical baptism. It is a heretical practice of a heretical world denomination. A pagan world denomination, if I would be so bold. And so when people come to me and say, but I was baptized as a baby. No, you weren't. You were sprinkled by a false, heretical, Romanist priest. And that is not what Jesus taught. You don't get saved by being sprinkled with water. You get saved, even as we saw, by truth, by the Word of God. That's what sets men free. That's what saves men. The Holy Spirit in chapter 2 of Acts takes that Holy Spirit, pierces the hearts of men with the, the Holy Spirit, takes the truth, pierces the hearts of men, and that's what saves men. And then they were baptized. As many as received his word were baptized. Not we baptized everyone there and then gave them the word. As many as received his word were baptized. The, the Roman Catholic Church is totally in opposition to the teaching of Jesus with their heretical infant baptismal regeneration. It's wrong, it's sinful, and it is not baptism. So if some of you are here today and you're thinking, well, I was baptized when I was a baby. No, you weren't. Because that's not biblical baptism. Well, what about the Presbyterians? Well, we have then the Presbyterians who teach that you should baptize children in connection with the Abrahamic covenant. This uh, is what we call pedo-baptism. And if you understand this verse, I'm sorry, it eliminates that too. Let me give you a basic principle of biblical hermeneutics. A basic understanding of biblical hermeneutics. Hermeneutics means the interpretation of the Bible. And you have to follow certain principles in order to properly interpret the Bible. And one of the key principles in hermeneutical teaching is the Bible can never contradict itself. The Bible says something and it cannot be contradicted by something else somewhere else. That is a key foundational principle of interpretation of the Bible. So here's my point. Sometimes there are verses that are so clear, so without question, so understandable, that whatever else you come up with, if it contradicts what that verse says, it can't be right. This is one such verse. This verse is our Lord Jesus standing before his apostles saying, Baptize disciples 
And so if you come along and say there's something else, no matter where you get it from, it's contradicting what Jesus says. And I'm sorry to say you know that I'm a fan of some great Presbyterians in history, and I, I'm a, I love R.C. Sproul, I'm a big fan, but paedo-baptism is wrong. I remember years ago being a subscriber to the Legionnaire, which is the R.C. Sproul ministry, the Legionnaire uh, publication known as Table Talk. And one, it comes out monthly, and one month we got this uh, publication, Table Talk. How shall we baptize? That was the big print on the cover. After that, I never renewed my subscription. And they went through... Article after article after article trying to connect back to the Abrahamic covenant. Trying to say that you see this is the continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. And this is what we are supposed to do. And I remember distinctly saying to my wife, and this is years ago. They just don't show the Bible. They just don't go to this text. They ignore it. They don't see what the clear implication of Matthew 28, 19 is. They just ignore it and say, well, we got to baptize because that's what the covenant showed to Abraham. No, you don't. I wonder how many of them realize and understand that the Presbyterian church sprinkles girls. So they sprinkle boy babies and they sprinkle girl babies. How many girl babies were circumcised in the Old Testament? Now don't laugh, because um, it's, it's possible. It was a practice of other pagans. And it still is, in Muslims. But the Israelites did not circumcise girls. Only boys. So why then does the Presbyterian church sprinkle girls? If they're saying that it's a continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. And all of these things that they come up with, and all of these things that they use to describe, they just ignore this clear, undeniable text of Scripture that says, make disciples and baptize them. That is what we are to do. And folks, that's why I'm a Baptist. Remember, I was born in a Pado baptist church, or an infant-baptizing church, christening really. And I absolutely reject it because of this text. What else can you do when Jesus says, make disciples, baptize them? And all the mumbo-jumbo and all of the explanations and all of the articles just do not do away with the clear teaching of Jesus in this verse. Make disciples, baptize them. Their reasoning falls short of this specimen text. Baptize disciples. I would also add that it is nowhere seen in the New Testament, as the practice of the church baptizing infants. It's not seen or taught in the Bible that you baptize babies. 
Converts, you baptize. And we'll see a couple in a moment. But not babies. Well, they say, but everybody was new, a new convert in the New Testament. And so that's why they baptized believers in the New Testament. And they do point to two examples. Look at Acts chapter 16. And I want to let you in on a little secret here. Acts chapter 16. If you would, please look down to verse 14. You know what? I probably... I wish I could back up a little bit, but I have to kind of explain to you that at this time, the Apostle Paul was way up in the area of Greece in, during this time of teaching. Because we, we read about him uh, being out in the Sea of Troas, and, uh, and it says they came to Philippi, a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And that's kind of way up, away from Jerusalem. And there on the Sabbath day, this is verse 13 now, they went outside the gate to a riverside. Note, a riverside. Just keep that in mind. And where they were supposing there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who were assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Now this is why I mentioned they're way up in this Macedonian area. Thyatira was down in what we now call Turkey. It's one of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation. And we actually mentioned Lydia when we looked at the church Thyatira. How far away she was from home. Far away she was from home. She was a seller of purple fabrics because that's what they did in Thyatira. They made dyes. They made dyes for fabrics. Paul is speaking to her outside by the riverside there in Macedonia. She was a worshiper of God and was listening to, the, to him and the Lord opened her heart to respond. Those who say that Jesus knocks at the door of your heart, but can't open it because the door handle is on your side. Never read this verse. The Lord opened her heart. God saves. Opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, She and her household were baptized. First of all, she's far away from home. Who was her household? It probably was not her kids. It was probably the staff there to help her in her travels in her business dealings. And even if it was her children, does it say they're kids? Does it say they're infants? Why is it that they could not be saved by the word of Paul and then baptized? So her household likely meant her staff, her servants, not necessarily her children. 
And even if it did mean her children, here's one of my children. He's not an infant. See how that works? Same thing with the Philippian jailer. Same chapter. If you go down right here in this text, this is what paedo-baptists point to. You see, her whole household was baptized. Well, why couldn't her whole household have been saved? And the same thing holds true to the Philippian jailer. The jailer awoke, this is verse 27, the prison doors were opened and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because that's what would have happened to him if his prisoners had escaped. Rome would have killed him, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and the others. And after he brought them out, said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke to the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. You see, they had gone to his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. The same thing we said about Lydia applies to the Philippian jailer. His household could well have been his staff. But even if it was his children, that doesn't say, the text never says, that they were babies or infants. They could have been teens. They could have been in their 20s. We have no idea. But the point is, be careful. If you're going to make a theological supposition based on a passage which is not clear in who is baptized, and it contradicts what Jesus clearly says in Matthew 28 and verse 19 as to who should be baptized. Because I say to you, the Apostle Paul would never contradict the teaching of Jesus and baptize someone who is not a disciple. Because that's who Jesus said to baptize. Baptize disciples, not infants who cannot understand the truth or the word of God. So, my friend, I say to you, do not assume that these texts talk about children when they never say so. And the teaching of Rome and the teaching of the Presbyterians and others like them who suggest that it's to make them covenant members of the family are just wrong. It is not what Jesus says. Again, Matthew 28, verse 19, make disciples, baptizing them. Baptizing disciples. This is the clear teaching of our Lord. And again, as I said before, it is why I am a Baptist. It's why we are a Baptist church. It doesn't mean anything strange or unusual like some people think. It simply depicts the manner of baptism that we hold to. We baptize 
believers. Many of you realize that Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 1800s, had a huge church, a huge following, but he came from a Presbyterian family, believed in paedo-baptism, but he rejected the his father was a preacher. His grandfather was a preacher in the Presbyterian. He rejected that. And he was a Baptist. He was the black sheep of the family. He was a Baptist because he believed what Jesus said in the Bible. Sometimes it takes a little courage to take a stand and believe what Jesus said. But this is the clear teaching of our Lord. And in an effort to be faithful to the Scripture, we are Baptists. That's what we are. We baptize believers. Now I thought I could get to the method, but I have a couple of passages that I'd want to turn to and it would just be a little bit too late. We'll get to them next Lord's Day. But let me just say to you today again, if you want to be, as Jesus said, my disciples indeed, They're the ones who keep my word. And that's what we want here. It is my job, it is my desire to see, even as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, this church built up to maturity, to have mature believers. And part of that is understanding why we do what we do. I don't want you to just follow in line. Hey, we're Baptists, that's it, get over it. I want you to understand why. Why are we Baptists? Why do we do what we do? The simple answer is, it's what Jesus told us to do. Make disciples and baptize them. Some of you here, and some who are perhaps even away today, need to consider what it means to be a disciple. And then to follow in obedience to Christ and be baptized. I pray that God will let this passage weigh upon your hearts as you consider that. Let's pray.